You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. From the viewpoint of morbidity and mortality, ovarian cancers are the most important group of malignancies in gynecologic oncology. The risk of death is greater than from cervical and endometrial cancer combined. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Joel Heller, your host, and joining me is Dr. Diljeet Singh, a gynecologic oncologist at the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center of Northwestern University and assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. We're going to talk today about the latest information on ovarian cancer, education, screening, and prevention. Let's begin by talking about the incidence of ovarian cancer in the United States today. What are the numbers currently and what's the peak age of incidence? So there's about 23,000 cases of uh, ovarian cancer a year in the U.S., um, or that's what's projected for 2007. And the vast majority of those women, about 15,000, um, will die of ovarian cancer. Women get ovarian cancer in their 60s. Um, the vast majority, 65, 67, is probably the current peak incidence. What are the major risk factors in reference to ovarian cancer? You know, we know less about risk factors than we probably know more about preventive factors. So risk factors, being over the age of 50, <laughs> you want to have that risk factor, you know. Right. Um, <laughs> the other risk factors, probably having no children, having a personal history of breast cancer, having a, a family history of breast um, or ovarian cancer. It's tough for me, though, because all of those things are so different. Number one, 70% of women who get ovarian cancer don't have any of those things other than they're over the age of 50. And so that means that if you were only looking at those factors, you would not consider yourself at risk. Um, The other thing is is the family history of breast to ovary cancer. I mean, that's something that women should really be aware of, that they can have a substantially increased risk. And so you know, women, especially in the generations past, did not really talk about getting women's cancers. And um, unfortunately, so people don't know. Um, but there's prevention that we can do against ovarian cancer. And so knowing that there were women in your family who had breast ovary, knowing on your dad's side that there's a history of breast or ovarian cancer because you can get an inherited predisposition to ovarian cancer from your paternal side just as easy as you can from your maternal those things are important, and I'd put those kind of in a different class of risk factors. That's something everyone should know about their family. So you mentioned uh, uh, something briefly that sounds very hopeful, and that's the ability to prevent ovarian cancer. Can you talk a little bit about that? Talk about it for hours. Come on! (laughs) (laughs) Um, Preventing ovarian cancer, sort of the no loss, no risk, the best one, probably is maintaining ideal body weight. And um, there's good evidence that increased... um, being overweight increases your risk of ovarian cancer, too, getting enough vitamin D. That's a hard thing to prove, but there's plenty of data that says that if you get at least uh, 1,000 international units of vitamin D, that you will decrease your risk um, or you won't be at increased risk for ovarian cancer. Oral contraceptives, you know, they're a miracle drug. Um, progesterone-based oral contraceptives um, will substantially decrease a woman's, a woman's risk of ovarian cancer by 8 to 10% per year of use. The longer you use them, the longer the benefits. Studies sort of tend to say at five years we get, you know, a 30 to 50% decrease. Um, it's probably more than that, and it just gets hard to study because you can't follow people for that long. Having kids, you know, don't have a baby so you don't get ovary cancer, but that is something that's protective against ovarian cancer, both among women who have an inherited predisposition and um, the general population being on the pill and then um, having children both are protective. Having your tubes tied decreases your risk of ovarian cancer. Having hysterectomy decreases your risk of ovarian cancer. I don't advocate 
hysterectomy for that purpose, but if someone's weighing the risks and benefits, it's a, it's a benefit. So as we talk about birth control pills and having children as being protective, it makes it sound like there's something in making the ovary take some time off that is protective. You know, I think it's more complicated than that. We always used to have this kind of belief of incessant ovulation, and I just love that term because it sounds like something bad that's <laughs> continually happening. Um, but it's not. Probably it's something more complicated than that because if you look at, say, oral contraceptives, and let's say we know oral contraceptives don't prevent every single ovulation, so let's say they prevent 10 in a year, 10 out of 12. How can, like, you know, 10 ovulations is not 8% of your lifetime of ovulation, so how do you see a decrease in 8% of ovarian cancer? Probably it's a combination of decreasing um, ovulation and so decreasing damage to the surface of the ovary, et cetera, that's caused by ovulation and then the healing process. But probably progesterone in and of itself has a protective effect. And we think of pregnancy as a progesterone state, and oral contraceptives are um, progesterone balanced, are progesterone dominant. Dominant, yeah. There's some good work saying that progesterone may uh, contribute to what we call apoptosis or, you know, turning off cells that are doing the wrong thing, and that might even help in, you know, redifferentiating. There's a you know really excellent researcher up at Evanston Hospital who's done some lab work, some work in chickens, um, and then I think in I forget some kind of mammal, sort of looking at these same questions, and it really does look like progesterone in and of itself has some protective effects. What is the current state of our ability to screen for ovarian cancer? You know, unfortunately, um, not where it should be. We do not have a current screening test for ovarian cancer. The tests that people traditionally think of. And they'll, you know, every six months I'll get an email from one of my friends about CA-125 and how everybody should have a CA-125. Unfortunately, CA-125, which is a serum test, a blood test for an antigen uh, surface of the ovaries, is not a good test for two reasons. One, 50% of early-stage ovarian cancers have normal CA-125s. Two, there's a billion reasons for a woman to have an abnormal CA-125 that are not related to ovarian cancer. Most commonly, we worry about, you know, there are these false positives in premenopausal women. So having your period, having endometriosis, having an infection, having diverticulitis, having fibroids, having adenomyosis. I have to say, you name it, I've seen it. Someone's come to me because they had an abnormal CA-125, and we ultimately found it linked to liver disease, cirrhosis, something unrelated. But even in the postmenopausal um, group, heart failure, diverticulitis, there's a number of things that can cause a false positive or CA-125. The other sort of area that was our sort of next great hope for ovarian cancer screening was ultrasound. kind of makes sense. You're going to get a good look picture of the ovaries. Unfortunately, it sort of hasn't played out that way in huge trial from the U.K., trial from Louisville. In our own experience here in the Northwestern um, Ovarian Cancer Early Detection and Prevention Program that we've followed since 1994, in all of these things, and then the PLCO, the NCI trial, prostate, lung, colorectal and ovarian screening trial. The first data was just presented this year, a couple months ago, last month actually, March, where again we looked at those things, CA-125s and ultrasounds, and in all of those, the vast majority of things that we find are more advanced ovarian cancers, and then a substantial number of cancers are missed, and then a substantial number of procedures, surgeries, or tests are done to evaluate things that aren't real. Is there anything out there looking in the future that research is currently going on that maybe holds out hope for a better screen? Absolutely. (laughs) We have some really exciting work here at Northwestern 
using a nanotechnology approach um, with Dr. Chad Merkin, who is just a really brilliant scientist up at Evanston, Northwestern University. So using serum, looking for different markers. We have a couple tests we're looking at now, inhibited and MIS, although we're going to collaborate with some other researchers to look at HE4 and mesothelin. So looking at different serum tests. And the concept is, is that, you know, I keep saying ovarian cancer and most ovarian cancer that people think about is what we call epithelial ovarian cancer, but even epithelial ovarian cancer comes in a bunch of varieties. There's papillary serous, and that's often positive with a CA125. There's mucinous, that's usually negative. Negative, right. There's endometrioid, there's clear cell. So of those, for example, inhibin seems to be a pretty decent test for mucinous tumors. Um, if we could come up with a panel of tests, we have hope of picking things up, and that's where most people have focused their energy, one, two, if we could um, find a way that women can establish their own norms. For example, and this is where nanotechnology becomes really exciting, if you can literally use a drop of blood or use urine to pick up very small quantities of something, you might establish your own norm and then figure out when you go off your norm, so to speak. I think the other thing that's good, interesting, has changed how we think about this is now that laparoscopy is an option, not that anybody wants a surgery if they don't need it, but even when you think about a false positive or evaluation of an ovary finding or a blood test, I do think that that's changed from the days that, you know, an abnormal CA125 meant you had a big open surgery and hysterectomy and removal of both tubes and ovaries. That certainly isn't where we are anymore. And so I think that's changed a little. I do think somewhere in the next five to ten years we will have a reasonable test. And the other activity will be the thing that we talked about kind of initially was people trying to better identify their own personal and individual risks and so thinking about whether or not they should be evaluated in some way. Unfortunately, with ovarian cancer and there not being a, a good screen available, patients tend to be found late in the process. Uh, as a general rule, how does the ovarian cancer patient present to their primary care doctor? Probably they get diagnosed with their ovarian cancer a year after they actually present to their doctor. And there's some great work by Dr. Barbara Goff from uh, the University of Washington looking at um, symptoms. And most women who have ovarian cancer have persistent symptoms of lower abdominal pressure, abdominal pain, GU symptoms for up to a year prior. So those ones that I just mentioned, lower abdominal pain, bloating, um, pain with intercourse, abdominal pressure, there can be things that are more vague. The problem is that there's so many relatively common and benign things that can cause that symptom. But the important things for women and the important thing for doctors to know is when symptoms persist, they should be evaluated. So you're a primary care physician and a patient comes into you with a persistent complaint as above. What should they do? What, what test should they get? Well, see, it depends on the symptom, and that's the hardest part about it. So one of the things that people will often get early on is a colonoscopy which unfortunately doesn't give us any look at inside the abdomen. Probably there is a point where an ultrasound, a pelvic ultrasound makes sense. And I will say this, and, you know, people may shoot me on the street tonight for saying it. In a person who comes who's postmenopausal, who has some symptoms, you know, suddenly then an ultrasound and a CA-125 are no longer screening tests. Then you're using them as a diagnostic test. So if someone comes, they have an abnormality on their ultrasound, absolutely they should have a CA-125 drawn. Um, or they have a cyst or something. 
I don't think everybody needs a CAT scan, and if everybody got a CAT scan, we'd see renal failure and drug, <laughs> you know, allergies from right. contrast. The thing that the golf group is working on, and we hope to actually collaborate with them in this, is actually coming up with a questionnaire where, you know, the same way as we use lists of questions to try to identify people who are at risk for alcoholism, we come up with questionnaire. We say, you know, how long have you had this symptom? How long have this symptom? And then we use sort of what we know about populations and what we've found um, from existing data to say this person is at higher risk and deserves what evaluation. The things that seem most simple but are sort of sometimes missed are things like a pelvic exam, an abdominal exam, and then sort of not assuming and making sure that a patient who, you know, yeah, maybe it makes sense to first treat constipation, but that patient needs to understand if her symptoms persist even after treatment, she needs to come back. I want to thank Dr. Diljit Singh, who has been our guest today, as we discuss the difficult malignancy of ovarian cancer. I'm Dr. Joel Heller. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.